Hello, welcome to Digfin Vox, the voice of digital finance. My name is James DiBiazio, and joining me on the program today is Varun Matal. Varun is author of Singapore, the FinTech Nation. He is also a partner at EY and has formerly worked at places as diverse as Ant Financial, Samsung, and Singtel. In today's discussion, we talked about the book, about the challenges of scaling FinTech across Southeast Asia, about what would be the ideal FinTech to launch in today's environment, and what his next book project is. So please join me in welcoming Varun Mittal. My pleasure, Jane. So um, I'm really pleased to have you here. Um, I was a fan of your book, uh, which I think uh, I think you can see here. Um, you know, Singapore, you. the tech nation. Um, so you wrote this with uh, Dr. Lillian Ko. Um, how did yes. you guys settle on doing this project? So 2019, uh, I went to Israel. Uh, so Singapore government had a program to find interesting ideas, companies, which we could bring from Israel to Singapore. So I was part of a study delegation. And when we went there, we found that everybody was calling it the startup nation. So my inquisitive mind said, okay, let's figure out where did this name come from? So I figured out that it was a book written by two gentlemen on called Israel, the startup nation. So I read the book. I was fascinated. I read it again. So when I came back, I was like, this is very similar. And historical background, there are similarities in how Israel and Singapore uh, came into being. And I reached out to folks at MAS that we should actually do Singapore, the FinTech nation, because that's our core. And we start, and I started to think through what are the similarities. And the core similarity I found was the Israel has chutzpah. People are fearless. They will go bang into a problem, let it come on and we'll fight it out. And Singapore is kiasu. Nervous of failure. We want to be very cautious, very or like let's do a proper way to do stuff, and that works beautifully in a regulated industry, which is financial services, and being a historical colonial trade center, trade port, marine center, it works. It, it those two things fit beautifully, and if you look at historically how Singapore encouraged, so we believe that okay, there is a lot more to this story, and we started to dig through, and then I I felt that I come from a practitioner side of the view. I need somebody who's more academic, complementary to my personality, who bring in the academic rigor. I, am, I do not have that level of academic rigor. <laughs> I knew Prof was doing a bunch of FinTech training courses. She had a huge interest. So I reached out that, Prof, I need somebody complementary, opposite to my style of personality to bring the academic rigor while I bring the industry views, industry interviews, feedbacks from industry practitioners, and we fuse it together. And yeah. we reached out and, and MAS felt that it was an interesting idea. And they said, go ahead, do it. Let's launch it at the FinTech Festival. So that's how it was stuff which came together. What is the, what do you think is the most important argument that you two are trying to make in this book? The argument we're trying to make is uh, Singapore is blessed with some things which, which are unique which are very tough for any other country or a jurisdiction to, to replicate. And I'll give examples. Singapore is probably one of the very few countries which have one super regulator for all sectors. Uh, 
banking, insurance, Hong Kong doesn't have it, UK doesn't have it, take any city, city state or country in Middle East don't have it. United States has like 49, 50 regulators, depending on which state, what you're trying to do. So having that one, one house to take call across sectors, whether it's cloud, KYC, that's something which cannot, I mean, other countries can do, cannot do overnight. Mm -hmm. So that's one view. The other view is that Singapore has a, has a development model, which we have described in the book as Singanomics, where there's where it is something between the neoliberalism and the traditional planned, capital, uh, planned socialism, it's somewhere in the middle. So there is some level of planning, some level of focus, but beyond that private markets play. So that fine line middle balance is something which very few countries have. And that again, there is history behind it and also culture behind it. But Singapore has said, we'll be friends with communism as well as capitalism. We will be friends with East and West. So it is, not easy for other places to replicate it. So some of those historical, cult, cultural, systemic positions are not that easy to replicate. Yeah. And that puts it in a position to play for this. But why, why now? I mean, that's been the case. We could have had this conversation 10 years ago. That would have been the same. So what's happened now that's made Singapore a place where there's over a thousand fintechs uh, operating? So the, the difference, uh, what has happened in last five years has been that there is a massive, I would say, uh, commoditization and democratization of access to internet, access to financial services. So the companies can cross the borders. You can have new type of companies. You do not need to be a bank with 35 countries of operation and being HQ of that is, is what you need to become a, a hub for financial services. The next generation of uh, financial services hubs may not need necessarily need to be HQ of a 40 country, 40 country footprint bank because the way financial services have happened. And that is something why 10 years ago, that was the case. I feel we'll have looked at the, at the 10 years back as post-financial crisis. Banks were just recovering. Regulators were nervous of, okay, what's next? We need to ensure the banks are not too big to fail. So the priorities for everywhere was that, that, okay, how do you regulate, how you control the size, control the structure? Now the priorities are very different. And because now infrastructure has become easy to access, the next generation of companies do not need those 40 country institution as a baseline to do something. What about the fact that because it's so easy to at least set up and launch a company, uh, you know, we're talking about software, this isn't hardware um, uh, and, and the, the big infrastructure enablers may still be global, but but a software company can be launched anywhere. An e-commerce company can pivot into payments or what have you. Uh, and they can do this in Malaysia. They can do this in Indonesia, in Thailand, uh, you know, anywhere. Uh, so what's the value of having a place like Singapore other than perhaps just a hub for, you know, for some global banks and maybe some, some uh, a place where the global VC community wants to live? Uh, two areas. Uh, one is even today, if you look at, uh, more than 50% fintechs globally are B2B. They're not B2C. So B2C companies, you're absolutely right. But if you're looking at B2B procurement, which is to sell to banks, insurers, you have to sell to where the buying centers are. You cannot sell like a core banking system to a global bank in Jakarta or Kuala Lumpur or uh, Saigon. You cannot because the decision-making will not be there. 
So which is why when it comes to B2B fintechs, you have to be part of one of, which is why globally, if you look at Hong Kong, London, New York have been centers because that's where a lot of that decision-making cycle, the journey planning out uh, is happening. So more than 50% is B2B. And even if you look at some of the largest companies, the large companies were announcing 90 billion, 120, 30 billion, they're not B2C companies, they're actually B2B companies. Mm -hmm. So which is why they need to work with large anchor financial institutions whose HQs are there. So which is why one big advantage is that because see, Singapore is five, five and a half million people market. So it will never be a B2C center or HQ for this, just because that's the size of population and that's the size of country. Singapore will not have hundred million population ever. Right. So, so from that perspective, the B2B side is very important. The other part is when you're looking to pull talent and when you're trying to look at which are the limited places globally where you can pull talent because then it's when you're looking at family, taxes, uh, ability for rest of the family to get access to spouse working, schooling, uh, those, I would say, on enclaves where you can pull that global talent to be housed, which where you can give a overall package of ease of doing business, tax quality of life, uh, stability, safety, all of that. There are limited centers in the world. There are few. Singapore is not the only one. Singapore is not probably rank one in every criteria. But if you look at the, on the bunch of those, it lands pretty decent. So when you're looking at center of excellence for let's say cybersecurity, artificial intelligence, machine learning, product design, there are merits to set up in some of those central locations. And the other part was B2B. For B2C companies, they should actually be closer to where the customer is and they can probably have a mix of center of excellence and being next to the customer. Yeah. So that you is also, what's the right. Yeah, do you also need to though have some claim to certain innovations that you can say were a Singaporean phenomenon. For example, if you take the Israel comparison, uh, you know, it's when Intel and Cisco would move some of their favorite designers who were Israelis back to their home country. Um, and they had access to you know, a variety of things in that particular ecosystem. But out of that emerged, uh, you know, huge uh, innovations that Intel, Cisco and other companies then took forward, uh, you know, search, uh, chat, um, some some hardware uh, innovations uh, that that were you know all made in in Israel and then were sold into the United States and then went global. Um, you know what what's the what's the great innovation do you think that is coming out of Singapore or have we not seen it yet or is it is it the wrong comparison? See the premise is uh, Israel had a very different engineering culture which came in from the armed forces the specific technology divisions inside the armed forces, which were the background of that. Uh, Singapore is working on, so which is why you see like now, uh, Secret Lab, for example, is like a chair company it's on the path to be a unicorn. So there are different consumer product companies, different tech companies. One e-commerce company born here is now $100 billion company. So there are some stuff happening, uh, but it is not as much as like an engineering, a deep tech, it's slightly, I would say, more diverse, broader. Uh, would it be as advanced as Israel as of today? Probably no. If I look at the number of Israeli companies listed on in the US exchanges, of course, Israel will have way more. And premises, that's something which there are stuff being worked on, whether some, something may come off from biomedical, there's stuff being done on green finance, sustainability, uh, cybersecurity, centers of excellence. So there's stuff which will happen uh, it is, we don't have as in Singapore doesn't have as many deep tech creds as let's say an Israel has, and it's good to have somebody you can look up to.
Yeah, fair enough. What do you think will happen with the interplay in doing business cross-border within ASEAN? Uh, traditionally, um, you know, very fragmented markets. Sometimes people kind of like it that way, uh, even if they may not say so publicly. Um, and that if you're a global player, it can make things expensive and, and difficult. Uh, and if you're trying to scale, it can be really hard. Uh, do you think that in fintech, that these scaling issues going out, you know, using Singapore as a springboard uh, or, or being able to link markets together across the region, is that getting easier or is it just as difficult as it always has been? Okay, so I have a reverse analogy to it, so I'll explain. So the beauty of ASEAN is there is something for everybody. You want to be Islamic finance, we got a market. You want to do a controlled economy, we got market. You want to do gig economy or off, uh, BPO economy, there is a market. So the beauty of ASEAN is in the six, 650 million people, every segment you can imagine in the world, we have a market which will, which will have something matching to it. So it's a buffet where there is something for everybody. It is not homogeneous. So if, for example, there are companies who are looking at, oh, can I have one pitch which works for 400 million people, uh, one shot? Probably not, probably not. But there is something for everybody. So it's a much more diversified portfolio than a concentrated portfolio. Yeah. And but, but we, we've seen comp some companies are trying to, to, to bridge those gaps, uh, Grab, uh, C, C Limited Group, uh, a, a few others. Uh, how successful will they be? What, what's going to be the biggest challenge for, even, you know, whether it's e-commerce or... For, even for them, even for them, they have to take very different approaches. Let me give you some examples. So a few of the big tech companies, they got, they get in one country, they get a banking license on their own. But in another country, they do an acquisition and a JV. They have e-wallet in one country alone. In second country, they have a JV with a bank to get the e-wallet. And in the third country, they have a JV with a conglomerate to get the e-wallet. So even those companies have to tweak their model, tweak their go-to-market, tweak, tweak. So there's a local version of them when they go to those markets. They can have a regional identity and brand. So even for those regional players, they have to be very local, very tweaked out to that specific market. If they say, this is what I have and it should work like this, every market, it won't. Right. So, but in, in that sense, then they're in the same boat as a licensed financial institution. I mean, it might be a little bit easier to launch FinTech services, but at the end of the day, uh, if each market is different, you're not going to get the sort of scaling advantage against a bank that's also operating in multiple ASEAN markets. Uh, slight differences. So I'll give an example. Uh, depends on how a bank is structured. So if a bank is structured where all of it is to roll to one regulator, uh, then, then you have to comply to the home regulator as well as each country regulator. Versus if you are looking at as you are a financial uh, institution with investment. So for example, you will have some Japanese banks which have investments in bank in each countries mm -hmm. instead of having one bank franchise opening up specific branches. So if, for example, you have financial interest, you save own 15, 20, 30%, then each bank has to govern by local regulations, not the regulations of the other international bank owning 30% of you. You may have commercial collaboration, partnerships, and all of that with the main group. Uh, that's the premise. So which is why it depends. So if you are like, okay, I'm one brand and I will have 100% subsidiary in each market then your regulatory obligations and the changes and implications are higher versus if you are a more federated architecture. 
So some of the Japanese players, when they did ASEAN, have a federated architecture. Some of the Western banks, if you look at their Southeast Asian approach, that is a more that I will have 100% and it will cascade down. Right. There are no rights and wrongs. Some Western players have started to do the federated model for Indonesia, for example. They've started to invest in non-tech firms. They've started to do JVs with lifestyle players to apply for newer banking licenses. So and, and many insurance companies, yeah, many insurance companies have been federated from the start. Absolutely, insurance companies, and now they are buying stakes in wallets. Insurance companies are now buying stakes in wallets because they believe that the federated model is better in some specific scenarios to scale. Yeah, what's the um, biggest challenge for a fintech company trying to uh, escape, um, you know, gravity in this in this market to, to to go to unicorn or bigger? What what's the biggest challenge? See, the way I look at it is this, right? The bigger question is to define what do you want. So just, you mentioned Israel, right? So a lot of Israeli companies exit below 500 million valuation mm -hmm. because the belief is that the, a lot of founders believe is that, okay, we can sell at somewhere between two to 300, 400, capital recycles, creates a next generation of entrepreneurs and recycle and stuff. So which is why a key question is this, right? A unicorn is, is, a, is a number, right? It's not a right or wrong number. What is right for the founding team? Is it right for the founders to have uh, a more certain medium outcome versus less certain higher outcome? And some founders want that, okay, I want to go all in unicorn public. Fair. The other unicorns, so if you look at it, there are a bunch of companies which have sold for somewhere between 20 to $120 million in Southeast Asia, which ensured that there was decent cash created, value created, which got dispersed to the investors and the founders, which enabled them to create the next thing. So, which is why the key, the market is finite. The fact is Southeast Asia is a finite market. There are not too many people with the budgets to go and acquire you in a $500 million cash deal versus if you were in, in Europe or versus you were in China or uh, you were in North America, you will have much more number of people who can put 500 million cash to buy you. Do you see any uh, these, yeah, do you see SPACs coming in perhaps or other or, or corpus? Do you see Asia being a, a target for some of these pools of funds? I, I, I expect some of them to come in, but the economics needs to make sense because if the target is not significant enough, the economics will not work. Mm -hmm. So there have been announcements of five, six different SPACs, uh, some for fintech, some for non-fintech, some for e-commerce. There is a merit for some of those. Specifically, as long as the moment you cross the 2 billion valuation mark, then it starts to make sense. But if you are less than uh, a billion or less than 500 million, the economics is not that attractive. I'm not saying it's yeah. not attractive, but it's less attractive. You cross 500, it's good. It starts to look good. You, start, you cross a billion, it starts to become exciting. Right. And that's the typical view. So uh, that's how I look at it. And the beauty of that is, you see, a lot of these packs will need to list in international yeah. exchanges rather than Southeast, Southeast Asian exchanges being the primary exchange. Right. The reason being the liquidity, the institutional investors, the pools, and some, most of these PACs have listed there. And if you look at a lot of these Southeast Asian regulators don't even have a full clarity on the SPAC mm -hmm. regulation. So even like Singapore have said there will be a consultation paper, which I believe will come, but it will not be tomorrow that you will have 10 SPACs in Singapore tomorrow morning. You will not have 10 SPACs in Singapore tomorrow morning or 10 SPACs in Hong Kong tomorrow morning because yeah. all the other underlying pieces are not ready tomorrow. Can it be in three months? Maybe. In terms of the venture capital industry within Southeast Asia, you know, there's a lot of firms in Singapore, a lot doing um, 
uh, fintech investments and other type of investments. Uh, is it big enough? Do we have enough of a, let's call it an entire financial services apparatus to support startups and innovation, whether it's early stage, uh, mid, middle stage, late stage growth into the private markets, et cetera, um, and then into public markets? Are, are we, do we have enough yet? See, I believe there is enough dry powder for private markets. Uh, because now you have private equities also coming into this exact same thing. You have family offices also playing in the same segment. You have CVCs also playing in the same segment. Public markets, I would say there is some level of maturity which still needs to come in because you will need to have one generation of companies to go through that cycle and journey. For investors to see some of these companies come create value and stuff. Uh, public markets, I would say, uh, among if I were to compare public and private, I would say private is much more rich, diverse, and deep mm. than public as of today for Southeast Asia. Yeah, because traditionally we had a lot of very big, powerful institutional investors. Tomasek, GIC are you know the most obvious ones, but there's more. But they have uh, up until at least recently, they would invest in the United States or Europe or or somewhere else. Uh, they didn't really support. They didn't support local hedge funds. They didn't really support local stuff. Do you see that changing? Do you see a lot of local LP money going into local startups and innovation? No, I, I do. I do see a lot of that happening because uh, it always doesn't need to be directly because they, uh, the larger families, the larger sovereign wealth funds are LPs to a lot of VCs. They're LPs to a lot of private equities. And sometimes they are doing direct investments as well. Uh, so, the, so the way I look at private market, there is no dearth of capital. Because now you have actually European, American VCs, Chinese VCs directly coming in also. They are setting up uh, their Southeast Asian office, Hong Kong office to enter Southeast Asia directly as well. So private markets, there is capital. Cap, I mean, uh, broadly, there is enough capital, sometimes probably more than enough capital uh, chasing a limited number of good deals. Uh, so private markets is not that an issue. The key part will be how the public markets uh, embrace it in terms of dual class voting structure, in terms of, again, embracing SPACs, reverse listings, how the cost structure works, how the local institutional investors who have to cornerstone some of these IPOs of uh, local tech firms, not just FinTech, just tech firms. Uh, so that part, I believe uh, there is, there is uh, still a bit of ground to cover. Uh, I would say slightly behind private markets, but uh, it's, it's moving, it's moving in the right shape. Uh, now, in your day job, you're a consultant. You do a lot of work. You've also done some investing yourself. If you were theoretically going to set up a fintech in somewhere in the region, um, you know, uh, Varun Digital Widgets, uh, what what would be the market and what would be the product that you think would be, uh, you know, the hottest hottest chance of of making it? See. Uh... I believe that uh, something on the lines of a digital insurer would be something which would be uh, really valuable because that's, that's one part of financial services which has seen least uh, disruption per se compared to let's say a payments, a wealth, a lending. Uh, from that perspective, I believe insurance is something where a lot more can be done. And if you look at newer approaches, how newer generations, how behavioral science is, can be applied. And we've seen some examples in the US and Europe. So uh, I would say something on the lines of behavioral science combining with insurance to have a digital insurer targeted at the newer generation. So a behavioral insurer 
targeted at henry high earning not rich yet segment so people who are in the i would say 30s and early 40s that age segment uh, is something which i believe which is an unmet unserved need from that market because these are customers who look at so i usually say this the traditional model has been that there are artificial segments created today your video streaming my video streaming is same your app store is same as mine your taxi hailing app is same as mine why should my financial service access be different than yours so the, here's a generation which grew up which does not understand that why should you put labels based on how much money i have in my wallet you price your product i will define i want to pay for it or not right. i will define what what it is worth me you do not define for me do not create an artificial class system so there is a resentment in the henry generation for the artificial class system created by the incumbents so and if somebody looks at and wealth you already see robo advisors doing that they said you can be a billionaire or not here's this right. of course people understand that i buy 12 cans of coke versus one can of coke my per can price is cheaper because i'm bulk everybody gets bulk but warren buffet and i buy the exact same can of coke <laughs> the our coke contents are same so which is why wealth you already see that something on the lines of that in insurance would be beautiful and if it can be done cross border that will be like a beautiful opportunity yeah what do you think is the holding it holding this up i mean because when i speak with uh let's say uh quasi traditional insurers that are trying to you know reimagine their their tech stack uh and, and and trying to be more progressive on this at the end of the day they you know there's still a belief and i've heard this from reinsurers as well uh that insurance is sold it's not bought um and so this is a mentality that is i think might be um a challenge or if whether it's mentality or just reality uh, a, a challenge versus say i think what maybe you're you're getting at is something that might be more of the embedded finance solution where perhaps it's not even coming from um you know the consumer's not necessarily even interacting consciously with a, a brand insurance name so just your, your thoughts on that what has to happen see, see the premise of this right the part of like being bought versus sold there are enough things in life which are in that which fall in that category which are sold and not bought uh so if i were to look at the handphone for example how many times people are pushed with like okay is this new phone try this versus people say waking up okay tomorrow i need a new phone not right how many times if you look at percentage wise so that is just a category of the thing the key part is uh, the traditional model was that you will have an agency force and an agency force will have a commission structure and the commission structure is designed that way so if you were to go different channel there because the motivation and incentive structure is ingrained in a certain way for last 20 30 40 years so if you have to reimagine the incentive and compensation structure for your organization that's something which is a different uh, piece i the, we can we cannot drastically change the part of bought versus sold that's the nature of a product Uh, a payments is a transactional product nobody plans that okay i will have a transaction six i will go for a vacation six months from now and i will use that card in six months from now nobody does that it's a transactional thing that's how payments is you cannot change that inherent dna so i'm not looking at uh, evolution of the inherent dna but can we do couple should your whole life come with a critical illness or can i can i can i make my own insurance today for example you can buy a la carte packages why can't i customize my own insurance i can define each of these components why can't i have a package where i pick critical illness from one 
and uh, life insurance from another one and package it together in one portfolio. So those are things which are, the regulator doesn't stop it, right? There's no regulation which stops you from having a singular view. So it's a way of behaviorally looking at things and how customers want to consume it, uh, which needs, which I believe has a potential to evolve. The buy versus sold conversation, I don't think it needs to change. It's fine where it is, it's okay. It, okay. it can evolve, but that's not a blocking point. Okay. Um, we've seen uh, just this week, uh, or last past few days, Stripe uh, achieved a $95 billion valuation, making it the most valuable private market in Silicon Valley. Um, Plaid uh, got out of its uh, deal with Visa and is now also considered a much, you know, more in the, I guess, in the call it the open banking model uh, yeah. infrastructure play. So, uh, are these companies going to be able to make it in Asia? Will they will will they move the competition around, or are we going to see companies uh, in Singapore, in Indonesia, and other places that will be able to to compete head on and 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 own those kinds of uh, services uh, in in payments in Asia? See, the premise is uh, a lot of con. So, just to take a context, right? Payments in Asia is very different from payments in uh, U.S., for example. In Asia, most markets have local real-time payment switches built by the local banking infrastructures, uh, which allow for a low-cost acceptance. And there are people who have jumped from, they have not gone the cards, they've gone to QR straight away. And when you have a payment rails, which are built and to some way, I would say there is some level of state support or some level of banking infrastructure support or subsidization, and if you look at a UPI in India or an Instapay in the Philippines, a PayNow in Singapore, uh, uh, do it in Malaysia. So Southeast Asia, India, China for that matter, have local infrastructure which was built. And a lot of innovation is built on top of that. So which is why the value of infra is very different in these markets and definition of what is a value accretive infra value proposition is very different. Right. So to do a map, direct to direct map to map from those companies to Southeast Asian markets would not work because here you have a scenario. So imagine you are in the United States, you do not have a national KYC utility where everybody can go in and KYC. You go to India, it's a billion people and every you have a national government golden source of record to KYC everybody. How do you, you, you can build KYC companies on top of that? But you are not going to build the last, you, you cannot go and KYC 1.3 billion people on your own as a company when the government is doing and offering it as a service. Right. So, which is why Asia is unique and Asian innovation will be built on these foundations. And I would say Asia has been lucky because they did not have a lot of that legacy infra. And when they started, they say, okay, this is what we have seen in other markets is needed. We have to build it. Just let's just build it up. And that is why the Asian success stories will be very different uh, because the underlying macroeconomic and infra plays are different for them. Yeah. So last question, Varun, um, are you going to be working on another book anytime soon? Uh, there are two options. Uh, I am exploring if there is a second edition of this comes out because digital banks have happened. The first I, uh, IPO of a Singaporean company happened. A lot of stuff has, stuff is moving so fast. So one view is looking at that as an option and in discussing with uh, people to get feedbacks on, should it be done this year or next year or what's the right time? Because too early is not right, too late is also not right. So what's the right model? 
The other option could be that uh, there's an idea I'm working on. I've, I've never talked about this publicly. So uh, think of it like uh, Anne Rand Atlas Shrugged spin on banking. So the title of that would be When the Banker Flinched. And it's a it's a dialogue between uh, a fictionary inspired by some real characters, startup person, and a similar fictional inspired by real banker, and nine ten chapters of dialogues between them about different aspects of where they like and dislike each other's lives, and compare and criticize and are jealous of each other. So that's the plot. I put down 10,000 words uh, to just like get my head around, stitch it together. So I, I'm, I'm still in double minds. Uh, so there will be, a, will there be a second book? Most likely. Uh, will it be a second edition of this one or the when the banker flinched? That one, I don't know yet. Okay. So I don't know. Well, I certainly invite uh, any of our viewers or audience members to uh, uh, tell us which one you would rather be reading so maybe we'll get some some feedback from the audience and you can get a few extra data points on your journey Varun Mittal it's been a pleasure to speak with you thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us thank you so much, thank you.